Welcome to the NHL Wraparound Podcast, featuring Neil Smith, President, General Manager of the 1994 Stanley Cup champion New York Rangers, and longtime ESPN NHL veteran Vic Morin. Together, they share no-nonsense opinions on news and issues around the National Hockey League. Whether you're a casual or diehard fan, each episode of NHL Wraparound will leave you more informed. Now, here's your hosts, Neil and Vic. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode three of NHL Wraparound. Coming up on our show today, we'll start off with our one-timers, and then we're going to move on to the perilous world of NHL head coaches. After that, we will welcome in our special guests, and you'll notice that no, neither Neil nor I are wearing hats, and neither will our guest. And for that matter, when he played, he didn't wear a lid either. It's the last player not to wear a helmet in the NHL, and he's also the former general manager and head coach of the Edmonton Oilers, Craig McTavish. He will speak on the Oilers' near-record-setting streak. Then we'll go to the NHL All-Star Game, take a look at the then and now, and we'll wrap it up with the human side of the story, both how Neil and I fell in love with the game of hockey. But before we get started, let's hear from our sponsor. From Howdy Hughes, from Bellevue to Bedard, we're your source for game-worn jerseys. Go to MyGray.com, M-E-I-G-R-A-Y.com to start your collection today. Get real. Get it from MyGray. And welcome back. It's time for our one-timers. Neil, what's on your mind today? Well, what's on my mind is uh, February 1st, uh, Gary Bettman celebrated his 31-year anniversary of being the commissioner of the National Hockey League. And while a lot of folks, hockey fans, don't like the commissioner, they didn't like the president, they didn't like Clarence Campbell, they didn't like John Ziegler, uh, the job of NHL commissioner is a lot more difficult and uh tedious than uh, people know. And you find this out when you attend Board of Governors meetings, which is the business side of the hockey. It's the owners. It's the people high up in the organizations all getting together to discuss uh, how they're going to run the business of the NHL. That general managers meetings are the uh, sport of the NHL and the Board of Governors is more the business of the NHL. And for Gary Bettman, who started in 1993 with 24 teams and had to control 24 owners back then and has now added eight onto that by this time and is up to a whopping 32 franchises in the National Hockey League and has to keep all of them happy. He's the employee of the owners, as are all league employees. And you can imagine uh, how difficult it is to keep 32 different personalities uh, in line and all together and all, uh, uh, you know, paddling in the same direction at the same time to try to have uh, a good business. He's His responsibility is to enrich franchises, to make franchises' values grow. That's his number one job. And nobody could possibly have done a better job than Gary Bettman's done in these 31 years. 
The amount of change that's come to the National Hockey League in a positive way is too many issues to enumerate on this podcast. He has done so many things uh, that didn't exist before Gary Bettman arrived. Uh, he arrived from the NBA, from working for Commissioner Stern, and uh, has just done, I, I think, an absolutely remarkable job um, of running the National Hockey League. And so we want to salute Gary Bettman in his 31 years. It's the longest anyone has been the leader of one of the four major leagues in North America. So uh, happy anniversary to Gary Bettman. It's almost trivial what I have for my one-timer today, but I'm going to uh, going to take my stab at it anyway. Uh, you know, Neil, have you ever noticed that, you know, all the websites and the networks, they all like to deal in probability in terms of the chances of teams making the playoffs. And you have commentators that'll just spout out, well, it's going to take 96 or it's going to take 94 points to make the playoffs. And I'm here to share with everybody today, there's a much easier way to do this. It's simply project. So the way you do it is you take the second highest winning percentage of the wild cards on any given day and you take their points, you divide by the number of games played, multiply by 82, and there's your number. So heading into the break and coming out of the break, in the East, it's Detroit, their bar, 95.1 points to get in. And in the West, St. Louis, 90.4. This fluctuates from day to day, but it's a much easier way to relate to what your team needs to do to get into the playoffs. So with that, we're going to start our first topic because getting into the playoffs is what every team has in mind. And we're going to talk a little bit about the peril of the NHL head coaches. And Neil, uh, you know, heading into the break, we've had Jay Woodcroft, Dean Evison, DJ Smith, Craig Berube, Lane Lambert all out this season. A couple of others are on the hot seat and they have been replaced respectively by Chris Knobloch in Edmonton, John Hines in Minnesota, Jacques Martin in Ottawa, Drew Bannister in St. Louis, and the most recent Patrick Waugh with the New York Islanders. And it just seems, Neil, that there is just so much more turnover in the middle of the season over the last 20, 25 years or so than when you were the GM back in the 90s. Yeah, it seems that way to me too, Vic. And I think the thing today is that the league is so, uh, they're so close. Uh, the competition is so close. The, the, uh, that uh, teams believe they still have a chance and that if they can, uh, change the coach that as, as, uh, it's, it's a, a big deal. A different voice coming into the locker room might propel them either into the playoffs, as is the case with the Islanders. They're hoping that Patrick Waugh will um, pull them up and into a playoff spot or perhaps into a Stanley Cup, as may be the case with Edmonton Oilers. They're, you know, a team that uh, is a Stanley Cup contender and maybe a different voice could help them get there. So I think that the reason you you didn't see it in my day as much was because it basically meant you're almost last straw giving up, last ditch effort, you know, 
nobody ever did it. I mean, I shouldn't say nobody because Lou Lamorello did it once in, in New Jersey, but rarely did you see a coach change that went on to success. You usually saw a coach change and it petered out by the end of the season. Now you see coaching changes with big results. So it's a copycat league as the whole world is. And so you see somebody have success by changing their coach you think maybe it's time to change ours. We need a different voice and you do it. And I think that's why you're seeing more now than you did in the old days. And do you think that's driven by the fact that there have been seven instances in NHL history going all the way back to 1931-32 that there has been a midseason coaching team and the club has gone on to win the Stanley Cup? But five of those seven have taken place within the last 25 years. Yeah, definitely. And I think even more have taken place over the, you know, the past 10 years, for example, you, you see successful coaching changes being made. Um, and, and I, again, I think it's because the clubs recognize, well, we, I think our players are, we have as good, good enough players. We just need a different voice. And, um, and sometimes they're right. And, and a lot of times, of course, they're wrong and nothing changes. Well, to that end, you only changed coaches twice during your tenure in New York. And as a GM, does something just click in on an impulse that says, you know what, something just doesn't feel right here? Or is it something with a coach that seems to go over a longer period of time where, you know, something doesn't feel right. And then you kind of see it more and more over time. And that's when you pull the trigger on something like this. So put us in the GM room and what your thought process was when you had to make your two changes. Well, you're with the team all the time. And and if you're a good manager, and most are, um, they're, they've got the pulse of the team going all the time and they're watching and they're listening and they're not in the locker room, but they're talking to everybody all the time and they're getting feedback all the time. And you can tell when a coach is starting to lose the players and by lose the players, what do we mean? Well, they're not listening anymore. They're not doing what he wants them to do the way he thinks they should play the game. They don't want to play the game that way. Um, and that, leads to only one answer. If your players won't play the way the coach is coaching, there's like, you can't change all the players. So you've got to change the coach and get somebody that can adapt to the talents that you have on the team and the way they want to play. I'll give you an example. I don't think that uh, Artemi Panarin enjoyed playing for Gerard Gallant. Um, I like Jerry Gallant very much as a friend, but I don't think that Panarin liked his style of playing. Uh, they turn around, they let uh, Gallant go after 200 point seasons and Peter Laviolette comes in and Panarin is reborn. And so there's got to be something there. So um, you're feeling the pulse of the team as the season goes along, and it's your job to judge uh, when the coach has lost the players. Again, you've only let two coaches go during your career, but I'm sure that you've talked to many other GMs that have let coaches go. There ever an instance where a coach really tries to push back at the GM to save his job, or are they generally more acceptant when they receive the message that they're being let go? 
Well, I, I think they have no choice. Usually they've got a contract that's going to take them out a couple of years or at least a year, and then they, they're getting a, a pretty big uh, severance pay uh, to go. And they know that once the general manager and the president and the owner make that decision, there's really no turning it around. Um, uh, so they, I haven't heard of a coach ever arguing back like you have in some employment situations where, you know, someone's working for a company and the boss comes in and says, I'm going to have to let you go. And they're able to talk their way out of it. Um, that, that just doesn't happen with coaches and managers. It's all part of the change that goes on in the NHL. And it just seems that it is just a, a never ending conveyor belt of movement within the coaching ranks. But speaking of change, you know, want to bring in Dor and welcome them as our, our sponsor. And speaking of change, I have changed into my Dor jeans. I am wearing the blue denim today. And really? I have to say they are as advertised with comfort and stretch. And I'm going to tell you a little about what makes this product special. Door makes stretch performance denim and lifestyle apparel for men and women. Door's timeless styles are unlike traditional denim. They're made from natural fibers for high stretch, breathability, and moisture absorption, complete with temperature regulating and antimicrobial properties to feel fresh, cool and dry plus door values sustainability and uses 85 percent plant-based materials for natural softness and comfort so upgrade your wardrobe and order your own pair of door jeans today check doors flagship stores in la or denver or shop online at shopdoor.com slash nhl fan right now our listeners can get 15 percent off statewide when you use our special url shop d-u-e-r.com slash nhl fan this is an awesome deal so don't wait to get your 15 percent off go now to shopdoor.com slash nhl fan and now it's my pleasure to bring in a man that i'm very familiar with a good friend a, a great hockey player in his day a good coach a great gm and uh, now a broadcaster craig mctavish craig if i'd ever known uh on the trade deadline in 94 that i'd be trading for a lifelong friend uh i think i would have made that trade earlier in the season well, feelings mutual, Neil, that's for sure. And uh, I remember you had a number of important acquisitions uh, at the trade deadline, uh, me not being one of them. But I remember you and I had a chat and I don't know whether it was, I don't think it was when I was initially acquired, but down the road a little bit, we had a chat and you were saying, all I remember is you were the guy that Keenan cared less about acquiring. (laughs) That was my indoctrination to, uh, to Mike in what was an unbelievable couple month experience for me. Uh, Well, just so everybody knows, I had been, we had been playing Asa Tikkanen and others at center ice that year. And I was, I knew that the Oilers or thought the Oilers were going to miss a playoff. So I was bugging Sather all year about Craig McTavish and, and he waited right till the deadline. And then we were able to work it out. But that was something Mike didn't know that I was doing that, but I knew we had to have 
a center, a shutdown center, a face-off guy. And boy, it couldn't have worked out any better for us, including the most famous and most illustrious face-off in Rangers history. And that was with 1.3 seconds to go to win the cup. And Craig took that draw and uh, it's all, it's all history now. Well, we were all worried about that because we had had a couple goals scored on us late in games. And so it was, it was more stressful than it should have been uh, in that situation. Cause I know uh, Jersey scored a goal late on us with the goalie out. And, uh, you know, so it was a little bit more stressful than it should have been. But I remember I was in Edmonton for 10 years before I went to New York. And uh, Glenn Sather and I, he took me for breakfast one day and he said, what do you want to do? Do you, do you want to go somewhere uh, where you can win a Stanley Cup? And I said, yeah, I want to go play in the playoffs. The Oilers at the time weren't going to make the playoffs. So. Glenn and I sat down over breakfast. I can't remember where it was, but he said, where would you, where do you think you'd like to go? Who has the best chance? And I said, well, I think Detroit. <laughs> so Glenn says, all right, I'm going to, I'll trade you to Detroit. And then you're right. It was, that was back in the day when the backlog of, of calls was intense. So the trade deadline ended that too. And I had no idea. And of course, my wife was wondering where, where we were going. And, uh, you know, but uh, th th it wasn't uh, announced till like five o'clock or something that uh, I was going to New York. And you guys at the time were in Calgary. So I, I flew from here and then coming to Edmonton for the, for the next game after the trade deadline. But man, what an unbelievable experience uh, I was fortunate to be a part of. And, uh, you know, I was there for a short time, but it was certainly a memorable time, and you did an unbelievable job. And I'm sure a lot of those trades w wouldn't have been easy uh, for the manager at the time, bringing in more veteran guys and seeing a lot of uh, your your background to a certain degree is in scouting. And, you know, that's the lifeblood of your organization, and you were giving up some pretty significant assets to get some uh, – some aging players like myself, but man, what a, what a great time that was. Hey, Craig, I want to move a little bit into the present somewhat because you had a couple of other stops after New York and you retired in 97. And of course, we'd be remiss in not mentioning that you were the last player in the NHL to not wear a helmet. So if you could start your career all over again and you had the choice, would you play with a helmet or not? Well, for sure. It's just peer pressure. When I started, the, nobody, I started on a very veteran team in Boston and nobody really wore a helmet then. And you're right. I'm known for really three things in my career that the not wearing the helmet, uh, the face off and pulling the tongue out of Harvey the Hound in, uh, in Calgary. You wrap up 17 years in a nice little bow and that's, that's uh, that's kind of what I'm going for. But, yeah, absolutely, I'd be wearing a helmet. You know, Mac T, uh, uh, you, 
I don't know that there could be anybody other, maybe Kevin Lowe, but, uh, could be more of an expert on the Oilers. And, uh, over the last, uh, two decades, uh, 20 years, you, uh, spent in and around the Oilers to my calculation, playing there, uh, coaching there for a long time, being GM, uh, now watching them in the present day as a broadcaster and, and a contributor and an analyst. And I want to ask you about the current team. You know, they go from a two nine and one start and to a, a historic streak, uh, that they're currently on. And, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it, from afar, it's, it just looks unbelievable that a team could turn it around like that. It can't all be one thing. I know it can't just be the coaching change. It can't just be somebody put something in the coffee for McDavid. So w- what are your eyes telling you? Well, I mean, I was never really worried on the start because I knew the team has had a history of high performance levels. Um, and I was disappointed to see Jay go. I, I, I mean, being a former coach, I'm never a real advocate of coaching changes. I mean, I know sometimes they're necessary, but it gives everybody a fresh start, I think, and the mentality changes a little bit. You can't win hockey games by trying not to lose. And unfortunately, that can be the mentality that the team takes on when when you're in when your uh expectation is high and your performance is low you go into games and i'm sure that's why we lost game five in uh in new york uh in the stanley cup finals because you go in there and you're trying not to lose you you just you want to end the season and get the stanley cup so badly that you're you're trying not to lose and then you're playing a conservative brand of hockey and a tentative brand of hockey. Um, and then when you get a coaching change, it rejigs the mentality, I think. All of a sudden, you're not 2-9 and whatever it was. You're starting fresh and not just from a record perspective, but from a uh, player perspective, too. You start with a fresh sheet and it eliminates a lot of negative thoughts and negative baggage going into the next game. And, uh, I mean, it, it definitely did that. Um, I think what could go wrong did go wrong in the early phases of the Oilers run. The goaltending was off. Uh, Connor was coming off an injury and Leon was a little bit off. Uh, the defensive structure of the team was off. The team was, uh, unaligned as a group. And, uh, but you knew they were going to turn it around. They're just too good not to. And now to go on this historic run, like historian of the game. And, uh, you know, it's, they have an opportunity to make history. And that doesn't happen all the time. They, I mean, it's unfortunate now they're in a nine day break, excuse me, and they're coming out going into Las Vegas, which, you know, it's not going to be an easy game to win. But, uh, and, and I mean, to just the added travel, too. You know what it's like when players come off a break. They're all in wherever they are, Mexico, or getting some sunshine, well-deserved rest. But they're coming back to Edmonton, practice, and going down to Las Vegas, another flight. And I think that's, I mean, that's a significant disadvantage where Vegas will be there. 
settling in. And I think the Oilers are going to have a tough time winning that game. Can they win it? Absolutely. But it's not ideal. So, Craig, we had Wayne Gretzky on uh, a week ago, and he had made the point of saying that the focus is now back. The team is rolling four lines. They're getting contributions from bottom six players like Warren Fogle and Ryan McLeod. The defensive structure is better, and they're also getting good play from Stuart Skinner and goal. Yeah, well, Wayne's bang on again. It's a uh, four-line game. And it's just when you're on a championship caliber team, you have to feel a part of it. And me being a third liner at my prime and a fourth liner at the end, you want to feel a part of the uh, a part of the team and a contributor to the team. And I think the way that uh, Chris Knobloch has utilized all his personnel has really molded the group. And yeah, sure, they're largely driven by the stars it's a star driven league and uh but everybody feels like they're a participant in this and that creates energy in the group and we've had big moments from uh derek ryan stepping up scored a big uh shootout goal in la scored a big goal in uh, i think it was detroit to keep the streak alive and it's just that's a great vibe in the dressing room and uh you know chris knobloch who was part of the Ranger organization in Hartford has done an amazing job. He's, he seems to me like uh, a very uh, unassuming guy, not about him, deflects praise everywhere, firm, and uh, has, has got, and Paul Coffey has come in and done an amazing job with the defense, I think. Uh, and I mean, who knew that? Like I, I coached with Paul Coffey at the Spengler Cup. He and I took uh, Team Canada to the Spengler Cup, and so I was pretty confident he would connect with the players. And he's not a uh, typical coach where they're in their office, embroiled in uh, video, and uh, he, he's 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 not from that ilk for sure. And he's out in the dressing room. The first thing he did was make sure that the defense sat together. And that's because he goes in there and he sits with the defense. And I mean, uh, he's, he's empowered them to make plays and, uh, they've, they've responded. And there's way more activity off the offensive blue line, uh, than, than there was in the previous regime. And I think, you know, Paul gets a lot of credit for that. So. There's a lot of things that have to go well in a 16-game winning streak, and uh, they've checked a lot of boxes. But it just seems like every game there's a, another area of the team that steps up. But the one thing that's really been constant is the goaltending. And the Stuart Skinner, he's a local kid. He was under a lot of heat. Being a goaltender in Edmonton is not an easy job. And there's a lot of scrutiny on you. And he struggled a bit at the start, quite a bit, as the team did. And he was under a lot of pressure. And the way he handled it and was able to rebound. And now he's just playing at a level that he's not hit before. But a lot of things have gone well. You know, Craig, you mentioned earlier about a uh, historian and me being uh, a, st- <laughs> a student of history. And, and the Oilers, what I really find amazing is if you go way back to when the Oilers came into the NHL, 
with Glenn say they're running the, the show, obviously, and have great success after they came in. But they were always picking up reclamation projects as they went along. They were able to spot guys that were, you know, needed a second chance, needed a third chance, but had talent. And now in this regime under Kenny Holland, it still happens again. I mean, Ken Holland went out and took Evander Kane uh, when nobody seemed to want him, when he left San Jose and nobody wanted him. Now this year, Corey Perry uh, gets himself into some trouble in Chicago and um, he leaves the Blackhawks and Kenny turns around and, and uh, signs uh, Corey Perry uh, to, for the, at least the rest of the season. Uh, in my mind, watching those moves, I, I, well, the Kane move has proven to be an excellent one. And I think Corey Perry is going to be one too. But can you comment on those, those guys and uh, coming into the Oilers? Well, low acquisition costs, guys. And uh, in the cap era, they're so important. And they have high pedigree. And uh, they're guys that, in my mind, as the competition goes up, as it inevitably does in the Stanley Cup playoff run, you generally, competition goes up to either overcome it or you're overcome by it. And these guys are going to get better. I mean, in the trenches and the tough areas. And I think, I mean, Kenny Holland, you know him better than I do, but... Uh, I mean, he's, he's, he's a cool hand at the ship's rudder, that's for sure. And uh, there was a lot of pressure on him early to make goaltender, make a goaltender acquisition, and he didn't do it. And, uh, I mean, the way Stuart Skinner's played, he solved a massive problem for the Edmonton Oilers. But, yeah, those guys, you know, they, they may not be the most graceful uh, skaters and but when the, when the, as Mark Messier used to say, when the rubber hits the road, those guys are going to be there. Well, it, it brings us to a kind of an interesting point here because we're going to put your GM hat back on for a second because their team is in the middle of an historic winning streak. But at the same time, they're looking at the competition in Vancouver who go out they acquire Elias Lindholm, and the Vancouver Canucks are not exactly afraid of the Oilers. They're 3-0 against them this year. They've outscored them 18-6. to So where does that leave Kenny Holland? Do you look at your streak? Do you react to what your potential roadblock to the Stanley Cup final may be? Do you make a move or not? What's your impulse? Well, I was a big advocate of obtaining uh, Lindholm. I mean, I thought he was a perfect fit. I knew somebody was going to get him. And uh, I feared that Vancouver or Colorado would get him. What was the, what, what was the, the, the uh, what they get for him? There were five properties, uh, including uh, Kuzmenko uh, from uh, yeah. the Canucks. Uh, there are draft picks that are involved. First but round all told five properties. Yeah. 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 There was, there yeah. was a first round draft. And, and also in there, and I think a, a conditional. I think Vic, there was a, there was a draft pick that can move up if the Canucks get to the Western conference final. So it goes from like a fourth to a third or something like that. Well, I always found, and I didn't do the job for long, but I always found Jimmy Rutherford was a very, very aggressive GM. And uh, he's not, I traded uh, 
David Perron to Pittsburgh when he was there for a first round draft choice that nobody was really offering me at the time. He knows what he wants. He, and I mean, Vancouver is, you watch them play. They're, they're, they're as good a team as there is in the league. And maybe in my estimation, the strongest right now. And the amazing job that Rick Tockett's done with that group. And you watch them play. They're, I mean, they're, they finish every check. They're aggressive on the four check. They've got significant skill. That Quinn Hughes is an unbelievable catalyst on the back end. And, uh, Jimmy Rutherford, he's, he, he, he's an aggressive general manager. And, uh, you know, he plucked what I think is maybe the, the, the biggest get that was, that's going to be out there for the trade deadline. Kenny, I just want to jump in quickly. Does Kenny have to react to that? Yeah, I think it, it, it significantly improves uh, Vancouver's ability to beat Edmonton. And uh, I'm sure, I mean, whether Calgary would deal with Edmonton is another story. I mean, Zadaroff went from Calgary to Vancouver, so they have a little bit of a history of doing deals. I, I don't know uh, what, the, what the particulars were, but uh, yeah, Edmonton needs... I think they need some uh, bolstering, some improvement. I don't think they can win the cup with, with what they have right now. They they need. I love Derek Ryan. Uh, he's done a great job. But when you're down to the last, you know, seven or eight teams, you're you're going to be facing elite competition and big, strong centermen. And uh, I think I think we we need to. Uh, improve in that area to win it you know craig uh, one thing that i know you and i have talked about in the past about championship teams and that is the the you know the expectation that's there that's put on a team but when the playoffs show up sometimes that adversity that you face uh, every team faces during the playoffs uh, completely throws them off uh, no better example than boston last year when they lost to florida in the first round after being up three games to one uh, my take on that is that boston had not faced much adversity all season and didn't know how to handle it when the panthers threw some at them um, how about your guys in edmonton are, are you know they've they faced a lot of adversity at the beginning of the season will that pay dividends for them when the adversity starts in the playoffs I think so. Um, and adversity the last couple of years, they've lost, they lost to Colorado two years ago, who eventual Stanley Cup winner. They lost to Vegas last year. <laughs> and there's a maturity that goes and there's the, 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 the best lessons learned are the ones most painful. And, uh, I mean, when you watch McDavid now, the way that he plays the game, it's a completely different animal than it was last year or the year before. I mean, he's figured it out in a big way on uh, how he can best support and help the team. And game in and game out, he's our most competitive player. And, uh, I mean, he's in every battle. And he's, he's not making friends out there, which we're kind of in a friendly era. And uh, he's going into the tough areas of the game. And when you're on the bench watching that, 
it can't help but inspire you as a, as a teammate of his. And you better get in the battle. And, uh, you know, the NHL playoff hockey is all about winning battles. And that's the nature of NHL playoff hockey that, you know, the competition keeps getting stronger and stronger. And you either get better and overcome it or you, uh, you get, you get beat. And, uh, the team that's going to win the Stanley Cup this year is going to have to elevate their game because of the level of the competition. And, uh, I mean, Edmonton has that capability, but to Vic's point, I mean, it's been a significant ad for Vancouver. Okay, Craig, I just want to say thanks for uh, being here. Vic and I really appreciate it. You're, I'm always amazed at your knowledge of the game. And uh, I mean, uh, I really appreciate uh, speaking to you. I always have. Uh, we've spent a lot of time just talking, you and I, but um, your your knowledge of both playing the game, coaching the game, managing the game, I, I just find really enlightening. And, and I appreciate you coming on with us. Well, we didn't even get into uh, Dallas. And <laughs> yeah. the, 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 uh, the Kennedy assassination, where, you know, we, when I was coaching, when uh, Neil hired me to come to uh, New York to, after I was done playing to start coaching, I mean, we'd go to, uh, to Dallas. And Neil had, much like Glenn Sather, like the, the, they both had – Many, uh, uh, many interests outside of the game of hockey. And Glenn was a hunter and he fished and he snowmobiled and he had a lot of, uh, outside interests as Neil did. And, uh, we, we would always go into Dallas and we'd go to the, uh, uh, the repository where Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, assassinated, uh, John F. Kennedy and Neil would tell everybody all the in, infinite details uh, there, which was incredibly interesting. And uh, he could do the tour himself. And uh, we had a lot of laughs with Neil and a, a lot of fun with him along the way. But thanks. My pleasure to be here. Vic, good luck to you guys in your, uh, your wraparound podcast. And I was shocked to learn that Wayne Gretzky only had one wraparound goal. That can't be true. No, <laughs> I don't know if it is or not. Did I, Vic, I don't remember if he said that was his only one. No, but we found the one that was most significant because it was uh, the the third and final goal of the 50th and last regular season hat trick of Wayne's career. And it was against oh, Mass. Yeah. And it was against Mass, yeah. I remember the other memory I have of the Rangers is we – Closed out Madison or uh, Maple Leaf Garden. We had a nice team picture there in Maple Leaf Garden, and Gretz was there, of course. And I mean, that was those were those were great memories. And Wayne was such an unbelievable talent back when he was in his prime here in Edmonton. I mean, the things he used to do was are just you know crazy. And uh, he always looked after everybody and was a great leader and. You know, that, that you win for a reason. You win with leadership, as Neil knows. And, I mean, those guys, when you look back at it, you just assume when you're going through it and you you have all that great leadership that it's just the norm. And then you go elsewhere and it's, you know, the people and Wayne and all those guys, they really, 
made the support staff and the coaching staff as Neil did in New York when we won in 1994. Craig, do you have time to tell us that Mike Keenan locked in the locker room story from St. Louis? Yeah. 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 So, uh, <clears throat> you know, when, when I went to New York, I, I, I mean, I was there for a couple months and Mike, who I, I, I like a lot. I mean, he was a crazy coach at the time, <laughs> but, uh, he, and I knew Neil and Mike were a, a bit estranged. We all did. I mean, why that happened, I have no idea, but, uh, Mike was, I mean, I, I ran like at the end of my tenure after the Stanley Cup, I was running for Mike because I saw, the way he handled players my age, Eddie Olchuk and Mike Hartman and those guys, when you're on the fifth line, he, he forgets about you. And I was kind of getting to that stage. So I ran to Philadelphia and sure enough, he acquired me <laughs> when he went to St. Louis. So uh, I went back there to, to St. Louis and Mike was, uh, it was in uh, Madison Square Garden. And we played a particularly bad period. And he came in and just ripped the cover off all of us. And, uh, you know, as the case, it's, that's tough to do for a coach. It was a bit easier for Mike to do, but, uh, cause it was kind of his DNA. But, uh, then when he goes to walk out of the dressing room in that little small visitor dressing room in MSG, somebody had locked him in. And he couldn't be couldn't get out of the dressing room after he ripped everybody. And he came back and he said, you know, a couple uh, profanities. And he said, I'm just going to sit here and torture you guys sitting in that dressing room till somebody opened the, the door and he's quickly scurried out the door. You know, a lot of a lot of great memories with uh, good and bad with Mike Keenan, that's for sure. Well, now it's time for a quick shout out to our sponsor. NHL Wraparound is brought to you by Migre, your source for game-worn jerseys. Head to Migre.com to get your collection started today. Get real, get it from my gray, and that is spelled M-E-I-G-R-A-Y dot com. Vic, I wonder if they're going to have any from this year's All-Star game go on their website at some point. Uh, that would be interesting. They're quite colorful jerseys this year. But you know what I'm, I wonder even more? I wonder if Barry Mizell has any of the 1947 All-Star jerseys, the first time there was an All-Star game ever back at Maple Leaf Gardens when uh, the defending Stanley Cup champions of 1947, the Toronto Maple Leafs, took on uh, another team made up of all the best players from the other five uh, original six teams. Well, there are some fascinating stories that go along with that. And, you know, much like the or I should say much different from the All-Star Games of today, which are basically skating and no hitting and it's all skill. These guys played to win. And in that 1947 All-Star Game, Vic Lynn and Kenny Reardon had a fight and Bill Mozienko broke his leg and missed two months. So, uh, you know, the game was rugged. They played to win. And there's even stories that uh, the coach of the All-Stars, Dick Irvin, put 
Ted Lindsay and Maurice Richard together on the same line. And these guys didn't exactly like each other very much when they played their, with, on their club teams with Detroit and Montreal, respectively. And according to Richard, they never spoke to each other the entire game. Yeah. It was a whole different uh, group of uh, people back then. And, and uh, you know, you got to think of the time and the era coming out of World War II. It wasn't long after that. Uh, people were really trying to survive. And, and uh, it was it was tough times. I mean, they, you, you watch the videos of those games and uh, it can it can get really ugly. Um, you know, it was around the late 80s when the game started to change into uh, the no hit half speed tap you on the shin pads type of game that we've seen that that uh, devolved, I want to say, through the 90s into the 2000s to what we have today, which is basically just a, a lot of pomp and um, circumstance and, and uh, skills competitions, three on three, the drafting of the players onto the teams. Really hard to get today's players to take an all-star game seriously. Um, they're sort of groomed by the veterans to not take it too seriously and, and just have fun with it. Absolutely. And one of the other things that just struck me was that, you know, we look at today's NHL players and there are numbers that are like all over the map. You know, there's 97, of course, for Connor McDavid, but there's 68 and 53. And in that all-star game, the highest number on any jersey was number 22. So uh, it's certainly come a long way in the last three quarters of a century from where the All-Star game was to where it is now. And now uh, with that, uh, we're going to come to the human side of the story to wrap up our show brought to you by UBS Financial Services. And today we are both going to share our stories on how we fell in love with the game. Neil, you first. Well, my story is uh, growing up in Toronto in the 60s. Uh, unfortunately, my dad passed away suddenly when I was 10 years old. Um I used to watch the Hockey Night in Canada games with my mom while my dad would be playing piano out uh, in a band on Saturday nights. The game started at nine o'clock and uh, my mom used to tell people how little Neil, he loves to watch the hockey games with me. So when my dad passed away and I clung on to my mom for uh, dear life, uh, losing one parent, um, you know, I was going to do anything that would make my mom happy. So I I started to play hockey myself as a, as a little kid. And, um, you know, my mom and I had that rapport about hockey forever. She had played hockey in the 30s and, and my uh, grandfather was a hockey coach having emigrated from England. So my life became about trying to please my mother who has hurt so bad from losing my dad and um, being in hockey made her very happy because that's what she loved. And we both loved it together for a long time. And I was lucky enough to have her at the uh, Stanley Cup game in 1994. So she got to see that and she got to see a lot of great things. I took her everywhere with me and all the events I went to in the NHL. And uh, we had a wonderful life together until she passed away in 2011. But my love of the game comes from my mom. 
And conversely, the love of the game comes from both of my parents who actually went to games on dates in the 50s before they got married in 58. But it was my dad who took me to my first game in 1968, November 24th, to be exact. And it was the Rangers and the Oakland Seals at Madison Square Garden. And I remember it so vividly that uh, Reggie Fleming got in a fight in the first period and my dad put me up on his shoulders Roger Bear scored the game-winning goal in the second period from the top of the right-wing circle right in front of us against Seals goaltender Charlie Hodge. And I actually saw a penalty shot in my very first game. Norm Ferguson beating beating Eddie Jockerman. And I found out from my dad that he had been going since 1940 and had never seen a penalty shot in person until that game. And uh, I remember vividly walking out of Madison Square Garden after that first game and giving my first piece of analysis, commenting on how well I thought the Seals played. So I was hooked right then and there. And so it evolved to a little bit something else. So this here, for a lot of our older fans, we know, and they know, this is a transistor radio. And unlike the iPads and the smartphones that everybody has today and the ability to get instantaneous information. The transistor was our lifeline for listening to NHL games. And not only would I listen to the early games, but I would listen to the late games too. And there was many a night that I would wake up the next morning with static on the, uh, on the radio for it being on and me moving the dial. But uh, just a quick uh, funny story to wrap up. I think my dad actually caught on to me doing this. And for the late night games, I would try to stay up till 11 o'clock and start listening. And I'd have the radio under my pillow and he would come in and he would reach under and he would take the radio out. And as soon as he left the room, I would reach under my bed and get a second radio so I could listen to the game. So it's just, uh, it's, it's such a great memory. That's how I fell in love with the game. And, you know, 55 years later, I am still in love with it now. Well, that's great. And uh, you know what? We want to say thanks to our sponsors again, uh, MyGray, UBS, and Doer Clothing. Thanks to you, the listeners. Don't forget to subscribe. We're on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And we hope we're one of them. Join us next Tuesday for more NHL discussion. We'll see you then. Thanks for joining us on the NHL Wraparound Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date on all the NHL action. 